Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. To keep the work alive, to keep oneself alive, it's hard, is a quote from the British Indian sculptor Sir Enish Kapoor. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, someone who has had an extraordinary career supporting artists the world over and expanding the audience for art, changing the way Australians perceive and engage with contemporary art. Our guest is Elizabeth Ann McGregor, AMOBE, former director of the Museum of Contemporary Art Australia, Australia's leading museum dedicated to exhibiting, collecting and interpreting contemporary art from across Australia and around the world. She is also on the board of the Sydney Swans Foundation, was president of the International Committee for Museums and Collections of Modern Art, chair of the Federal Government's Creative Economy Task Force, and a director of UNICEF Australia. Prior to a 22-year directorship of MCA Australia, she was the director of Icon Gallery Birmingham, one of the UK's major contemporary art galleries. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Japan, Spain and Scotland, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. With a career that began on the road, driving a travelling gallery around Scotland, Elizabeth gives us a glimpse into her remarkable journey that brought her to Australia to lead the metamorphic revitalisation of the MCA, breaking down barriers to art and engaging with broader audiences, establishing the National Centre for Creative Learning and driving a major focus on artists as educators. She shares with us the challenges they've had to overcome to allow her to develop MCA into the vibrant organisation the art newspaper has declared the most visited contemporary art museum in the world in 2019. So sit back and enjoy finding a way through. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Great to be here, or rather up in the Northern Rivers, not right in Sydney. Well, I can see some rainforest through your your window there, Elizabeth. Whereabouts are you? Yes, I'm actually just outside Kurabel, so right in the middle of the, the zone that's been so badly affected by these devastating floods. And I've been particularly upset to see what's happened to artists and studios and Lismore Gallery going under. And yeah, I'm very lucky I'm up on a ridge. I'm, I'm actually staying with Lindy Lee at the moment, the artist, and she's very happy that her studio uh, has survived. So it's been a very difficult time for a lot of people. How is the optimism out there, Elizabeth? Are they getting the support they all need? Uh, you know, people are incredibly resilient. I mean, I think there's a lot of concern, but, you know, there's going to be a huge, I mean, it's really what happens next. You know, can we really solve the crisis of the homelessness at the same time as, you know, looking for, um, you know, people to rebuild and so on? And where do we rebuild and how do we make ourselves more resilient for what, when it happens again? Because we all know that that is what's going to happen. Well, that starts with an easy question for you, Elizabeth. If you were Prime Minister for the day, then what would be your change agenda? Well, uh, I think that's an easy one for me. Um, if I could change the world, it would be to make every single government realise just how urgent it is for us to tackle climate change. Uh, it's not waiting for us. The world is the world is changing. The planet is heating, and we're seeing here in Australia um, more than anywhere. I think the you know the impact of what's happening, and it's devastating to see what's happening to people, and it's devastating to see what's happening to wildlife. 
And if we didn't learn after the bushfires, you know, where are we now? You know, watching the the experts talking on the news about everything that they said after the bushfires and that very little of it's been implemented. So we need practical solutions now and we need big picture changes to the way we run the economy. And I really believe that can be done. So, you know, in terms of of weaning ourselves off coal and and gas, but uh, who knows whether there's anyone with the political will to do it, really. Well, I'm going to detour for a second, Elizabeth, because I know we're going to talk about your illustrious career, but maybe maybe while we're on that role, can you talk us through what is the uh, the new life for Elizabeth? Well, hashtag new life is very exciting. Um, I've always been very engaged with conservation. I was involved in a charity, the oldest conservation charity in the world called Flora and Fauna International when it had a had some uh, input here in Australia. And I'm devastated about what's been happening to the reef because I'm a scuba diver. Right. So um, in discussion with my partner, we've relocated actually to the Mid-North Coast and we are actually looking for um, some land that we could conserve and better than that, put a covenant on, do something to prevent logging or um, make sure that we contribute in some way to preserving the extraordinary habitat that we have here in New South Wales. So... We'll see what happens. We're just uh, in the early stages of researching what that looks like, but uh, we're very passionate about giving something back to the environment ourselves by by making a positive contribution. And, and it, we can't rely on government for this. We need the government, but we also need private individuals to really help with the, with the, with the preservation of the landscape. Are you getting some genuine support? Well, we're doing research. We're we're looking at uh, at properties, uh, making sure we you know wherever we we invest our money is going to ma- be the maximum benefit. Creating a corridor for different kinds of wildlife, for example, and um, taking back um, areas of pasture that can no longer be grazed properly. Um, looking at uh, at all the issues of replanting native grasses and uh, learning a lot as we go. We did have a property for some years at Patonga on the right. Hawkesbury, and I did a bit of work around regeneration there. So we're not total novices, but uh, very much enjoying it. Now, that's an interesting accent that you've got, Elizabeth. Do you mind sort of sharing for the audience <laughs> where you come from? Because it's been an interesting background, and mum and dad certainly had very different backgrounds indeed. Well, I was born in Dundee and my dad had left school at 15 and gone to work because his father had suffered in the war and he he got very disillusioned with business. He was quite high up in a, a big company and, and he actually chucked it all in and went to university when I was, I think, very, very small. Uh, and he got the call. He went to study theology right. and he became a minister of the Church of Scotland and uh, we relocated when I was young to the Orkney Islands. I was born in Dundee. Um, Orkney, for those who don't know, I always say you drive as far as you can through Scotland and when you hit the water in the north, you take a boat and that's Orkney. Um, it's a wonderful place, uh, full of history, full of the arts, music, um, an extraordinary place to grow up. And um, I had a wonderful childhood there and an amazing education, a, a really extraordinary education, which led to me m- me studying four languages and, and uh, studying, doing music and all sorts of recreational activities. I don't know how we fitted it all in, but somehow we did. So um, it was a very good. And my parents, obviously, my mom and dad were very um, brought us up to really believe in giving back and caring about um, what happens around us and for those who are less well off. So we grew up in a very egalitarian, if you like, society uh, household. And I'm the eldest of four. My youngest sister is is adopted. As uh, right. uh, she's of mixed race, so my parents again gave a home to a child that in the sixties was very right. difficult to place. Yes. Sadly, and uh, fortunately, these things have changed a lot. But um, yeah, watching the uh, racism that my, my my sister experienced as a child and growing up was a very salutary experience, I have to say, and one that resonates with me with a lot of things that have happened more recently. I guess so, particularly in something like Orkney Island, which is not you know not a uh, a CBD of any form, is it? Well, it, it, I think it exists everywhere, to be honest with you. And um, it's been a, a wonderful thing watching um, the way that um, society is changing on, on those kinds of issues and taking them more seriously and really understanding what it means to um, to be subjected to that kind of uh, racism. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. But it wasn't just around race. My parents were great egalitarians. You know, they never let us get too above ourselves. We were always brought back down to earth, you know. We're, my, I used to joke we were forever starving for the people of Africa. We'd be cheese lunch to starve for the people of Africa, um, which was uh, a great way of my parents inculcating in us a sense of justice. Social justice really ran right through my childhood. 
I also believe that you're playing in the Youth String Orchestra of Scotland, <laughs> and um, you planned on having a music career until a maths teacher pulled you aside and said um, it'd be a shocking waste of a good brain. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, and when, when, you're, when you're 16, you take these things to heart, you know, and I was very upset about it. But I, I, the, the truth of the matter is I kind of realised I was okay. You know, I, I played violin, piano. I played the organ. My dad being in the church, it was quite a good way of avoiding having to listen to the sermon. You know, I could read my book <laughs> hidden behind the, in, the, in, the or, in the organ pit. But, um, yeah, I, I just realised I probably wasn't ever going to cut it really in an orchestra. And I, I really didn't feel like I wanted to teach. So I, I was a bit, you know, kind of wasn't sure. And I, I ended up going to university to study languages, actually. And uh, and very quickly, I had to take another subject and um, found art history on the basis of ruling out anything that was too early in the morning or, you know, as students do. And, uh, and really fell in love with it. It was like this light bulb moment sitting in the lecture theatre, learning about the cultures of the past through their art. I, I just loved it. And so I, I, I continued with my Italian, but I kind of dropped the French and, and went full, full, full swing into art history. So it was a bit of an accident, if the truth be told. And Elizabeth, did you think that would take you down a career in the world of art? Well, again, I think when you're when I was at university, we weren't there as a vocation. You you went to university to learn, you know, to learn all kinds of things. It's not just the academic things, but life skills. It was a very different environment. There wasn't this obsession with what am I going to be when I come out. So when I finished at the end of the four years, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. I looked at being a librarian. I looked at doing a PhD. I looked at you know completely different careers. And again, I was very lucky. I went to do some voluntary work in the National Gallery of Scotland and I got involved with the education program. And I just loved the way children would come into that gallery, children from all backgrounds, and it would open up their eyes to the world in a different way. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I don't want to teach, but I want to find a way to communicate how rich the world is uh, through art. And I was able to do a postgraduate in museum studies. And then I fell into this extraordinary job. Someone sent me a, a cutting from the newspaper, The Scotsman, and it said, curator, driver, traveling gallery. And I thought, whoa, what's that? I knew nothing about contemporary art. It, my, my training was all art history. I knew nothing about Scottish art. And I certainly couldn't drive a bus. However, I put my hand up and I got the job. And to this day, I'm not quite sure why they gave it to me, but I set off. My first three weeks of my, my career were learning to drive a heavy goods vehicle in Falkirk in the middle of Scotland, driving lorries. I passed and off I went with my bus, curating exhibitions, which I'd never done before, and engaging, meeting people, taking the bus out to places where there weren't galleries and, as importantly, to places where people would not be inclined to go to a gallery, housing estates, prisons, hospitals. And it was an incredible experience, really, for a curator to not only present, put together the exhibitions and work with the artists, but then have to spend time on the bus hearing what the public said. That was, it was amazing. I, I was very, very lucky to have that grounding experience. So what did you learn from all those, as you say, um, different backgrounds in society coming to, you know, to visit this, uh, this art exhibition on four wheels? Yeah. Well, when a bus drives into town, which is painted green and red, and you imagine it, it's more like a pentecnican, it's like a lorry. It's an old bus with a new body on it. And the doors open. Everybody comes in out of curiosity. So first of all, there's none of that barrier. Oh, art's not for me or it's all a load of rubbish. You know, there's no inhibitions. Right. And what I discovered was that when they came in and when they had a chance to talk to someone mm -hmm. who spoke to them, not in art language, about the ideas of the art, and sometimes we'd have the artist there. And it, again, you know, people's preconceptions, what does an artist look like? Are they, do they have a berry? Do they stand in front of an easel? You know, I, I remember taking an artist friend of mine with me and she ended up having conversations about what was on Coronation Street last week. You know, so it was this whole thing about demystifying 
the art and the artist. Uh, it, the bus was such a great environment to do it in. And I mean, galleries were pretty scary places. You know, as an art student, I used to go into galleries and feel like I shouldn't be there. You know, someone would kind of look over the counter at you as if you, you know, you didn't have enough money to buy the art for a start. And even public galleries had a bit of that, you know. And when it came to contemporary art, which is, you know, has you, you do have to work a bit at some of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of off-putting behaviours, um, whether it was, uh, you know, alienating language or, as I say, the attitude of the of the people, you know, guarding the artworks. Uh, guardians, you know, guys in uniforms, men, women and men in uniforms guarding famous artworks. So the whole atmosphere of a gallery was not really very welcoming. The bus was the opposite. And so that ethos of providing an environment, not necessarily making the art easy, but providing an environment where people could relax a bit and ask questions and not like things and disagree. And so to create an atmosphere of discussion and debate about the art was really, I think, the thing I found most enjoyable. And finding out that people have all kinds of all kinds of views that are just as important if they don't feel that it's, you know, that they, they don't feel put off. It's really as simple as that. Was it the turning point for you, Elizabeth? Because there's a number of messages there that you've kept all the way throughout your career and sense of simplicity. Absolutely. That was the grounding. It was about accessibility. It can be for everyone. Not everyone will choose to engage, but we should, as museum directors, be making art as accessible as we can, not by changing the art. We should still show difficult, challenging, sometimes off-putting work, but we provide an atmosphere where people feel comfortable, come in and check it out. You don't necessarily have to love it, but come in and see for yourself, make up your own mind, ask questions, take part in it. And so that kind of atmosphere is exactly what drove me um, in my in my museum and gallery career. So you want to talk about the next two steps before you made the move to Australia? <laughs> so after the bus, the bus was exhausting and uh, and I built a new one and I ended up down at British Leyland negotiating over where you couldn't put the various bits of the they said, oh, you just need a bit of a wall. I said, no, I don't need a bit of a wall. I need the whole wall because you can't have a, a, a heater interfering in the artwork. It's just wrong. You can't have a heater there. Move it. So we had a great time with British Leyland as it was then. Launched the new bus and then went down to London to work at the Arts Council, where I was responsible for helping regional galleries engage more with audiences in contemporary art. And that was a huge Another really wonderful opportunity to visit great collections, um, you know, all around Britain from England, actually, not Scotland in this case, but, you know, Birmingham, um, Manchester, Newcastle, Southampton, they all have great historic collections. And I was involved in helping them um, become more contemporary, buy more contemporary art, have more education programs, train the staff, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, I was on a train a lot. It was very exciting. Elizabeth, after the three years with the uh, Council of Great Britain, you moved to the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, uh, where you were a director. What was your your mandate there? Well, I was director of a contemporary art gallery in a city that's not had not historically been well known for the arts, but it was very exciting because the city council wanted to embrace the arts to change its image. Right. And we had the great Simon Rattle, for example, at the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. They were regenerating the canals. And it's a fantastically vibrant city, very culturally diverse, lots of music. You know, really, it was a great environment. And I I just loved learning um, what it was like to actually run an institution and to shape its program and invite the artists and look outside the mainstream and bring artists from Latin America and artists from, you know, African Caribbean and Asian backgrounds, challenging the dominance of, you know, the usual suspects in the British art world. So it was a, it was a very exciting time. And um, I loved my 10 years there. I also did a building. I took the build, I took the gallery from a small downtown warehouse into a beautiful renovated 19th century Victorian school with lottery money from the British Lottery, which was a, a very steep learning curve, I will say. Um, I learned an enormous amount about the building trade and uh, delivered that. And just after I'd finished it, I got the phone call about um, the MCA and uh, would I be interested. And um, 
Yeah, it was a. It took a bit of persuasion, I have to say, because uh, although I'd been to Australia and I I loved the art here, I wasn't very sure that I was ready to up sticks and go to the other side of the world when I just opened this new building after you know years of perseverance. So it was it was quite an upheaval to to come, especially when the MCA was actually in quite a mess financially and uh, reputation had suffered because of the bad finances and. My mentor, Sir Nicholas Sirota, said, give it a go. Give it a go. He recommended me. That's how they found me. They would never have found me in Birmingham. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, Nick was the director of the Tate, of course, and he said, you can come back after three or four years. Give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, you can come back sooner. So I took his advice and, uh, and um, landed in Sydney in September 1999. What did you actually find? Because it was nearly bankrupt, wasn't it? What I found was an extraordinary institution that had lost its way because it was had a very bad financial model. It was set up on the basis that it would be entirely privately funded, but it began with university funding. So as soon as the university funding began to, to be withdrawn, which they had said they would do, it was impossible to become 100% private funded. And no institution, you either have to have a big endowment no, no institution in the world can manage like that. You become too dependent on sponsors. You can't shape your program. And you can't have free access. I wanted free access, you know, and they were charging. The Art Gallery of New South Wales was free. The National Gallery was free. The MCA was charging for contemporary art. When nobody knew what the hell contemporary art was, quite frankly. And the critics were having a field day with the attacks and, you know, even, even art world colleagues. It was, it was really unfortunate. So it was a big task. But I, what I did, of course, was brought my strategies from the bus. We had to be free. We had to get more people in. We had to engage with a bigger audience, but not at the expense of, of working very closely with artists and putting forward sometimes difficult and complex ideas. And the number of times people said to me, oh, just do something easy that'll get the public in. And I said, well, what's easy? You know, your easy is someone else's difficult. There's no science that says this particular exhibition will, will get a general public in and persuade the politicians to give you money. It just doesn't work like that. But I had a lot of people who thought they could give me advice. It was, uh, it was quite a, a, an extraordinary learning curve, how to cope with that. I'll ask you about that in a second, actually. But, Elizabeth, when you took the role on and during your interview discussions, what did you have in your mind you were going to achieve? I believed in the organisation and I believed in the art in Australia. I felt that the art in Australia had actually been underrepresented in the world mm -hmm. and indeed not recognised in its own country. And ironically, the Museum of Contemporary Art actually had an international reputation. I knew about it. I'd met my predecessors. So as often happens, it did have a reputation overseas, but it was not um, valued enough. And so my motto became, we need to be locally loved, you know, nationally respected and internationally respected. So locally loved was the first one. We really had to turn around the negative perceptions that it was I mean, some of the headlines in the media were hilarious. You know, it was great gallery shame about the art, you know, the gallery that no one goes to. And dare I say my favorite from the Sunday Telegraph, when the premier gave us a bailout was money for wankers. <laughs> so I didn't realize it would be quite that bad. But um, all those press cuttings arrived when I was just about to leave. So I was kind of reading them on the plane going, oh, dear, what have I done? But at the same time, I had great confidence in both the institution and the art and the artists and that we could turn it around. And I just remembered what Nick said to me, have a go, have a go. You can come back if it doesn't work. <laughs> go back to bus driving. <laughs> and do, you, do you listen to critics then? No, no. I mean, the, the critics were just ridiculous. They made it worse and they were very, very conservative. And basically, if it wasn't a landscape or you couldn't recognize it, you know, their, their knowledge and understanding of contemporary art was woeful. And um, the then national critic in the Australian was, was a guy called Giles Autie, who was an, a, an English has-been who nobody in the UK would ever have taken seriously. You probably remember him. I mean, he lost all credibility when he actually reviewed his own exhibition. I mean, really? 
<laughs> so we were up against that kind of negativity. So um, I just felt we had to turn around those headlines. So our strategy with the media was to try and explain what we were doing and why. Mm-hmm. Whether it was the media, whether it was the politicians, whether it was the you know the general public. I you know I went and opened. I can't tell you how many exhibitions I went out to Western Sydney. I, I felt very strongly that this idea that somehow if you lived in the West, you wouldn't be interested in art. It was only for the rich people in the, in the eastern suburbs. Yep. Challenging that that misconception about art. I was, And of course, that's what drives me anyway. So I was passionate to do that. And I knew there was no way that we were ever going to get government funding until we changed that perception. So that was, we ran a campaign. You know, for example, there was a negative headline in the Daily Telegraph uh, and then there was a story that said, you know, should they get more public funding? Well, we didn't get any as it happens. Right. And and there was a number to ring. So I was in the museum. It was a Sunday. I stood on the front desk and I told everybody who came through the door to ring the Daily Telegraph. And they did. And we won the poll. So the next day, the headline was, public says MCA should get more public funding. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> did you really do that? <laughs> Yes. And of course, then finally, I get a call from the from the government, from someone in the in the premier's department. He said, what are you doing? We've just had a letter from Blacktown, from the mayor of Blacktown, telling the government what a great job the MCA is doing in, in partnering with Western Sydney. So, you know, those kinds of things. And we were, we, it wasn't a, just a campaign. It was reality. I went to Western Sydney and, and formed partnerships, lent artworks, gave advice to Blacktown to set up their own gallery and ultimately formed a a program that is still running to this day with artists working in in Western Sydney. So those things were, I was really passionate to see whether we could, we could challenge these, uh, these uh, ridiculous misconceptions. I mean, Bob Carr used to run for cover when he saw me coming because he knew I was going to lobby him. So it was much more effective that, you know, for example, when he went to Coffs Harbour, that the director of Coffs Harbour said, oh, by the way, you know, the MCA is doing such great work with us now, you know. So he was hearing it from all sides and then eventually realized that he could give us some money without, you know, the negative headlines like, you know, venue for wankers. And um, when he, it was very interesting, actually, when he did give us the, the, the money in, uh, in 2001, mm-hmm. you know, I woke up the next morning and, and I was like, I rang my PR person and said, what are the headlines? And she went through everything. There was nothing. So we'd gone from being having got half a million dollars and being described, you know, as indescribable and we should never get any money to, you know, 18 months later, nothing. It was just okay. Five million dollars over five years for the MCA. No one said a word. Six months later, we were the leading organization in a poll uh, of Sydney's favorite attraction. We beat the zoo. And that was people in the street. It was a poll that the um, the Chamber of Commerce did. And again, I nearly fell off my seat. It was like, did, did that really happen? People actually said, they, you know, the MC is number one. And so we'd gone in two years, we'd gone from being down on our knees to being a popular institution. And we were still showing contemporary art. We never shied away from that. And that was really important. Elizabeth, how do you change a mindset like that? And also... I guess, how do you get people in your team on board to support this? Well, that was hard at the beginning because there was a certain complacency. There were people who said, oh, the government will come to the rescue. They'll let, and I said, you know, from where I'm sitting, I think the government will let it shut. You know, they're saying it's a university problem, right? Yep. Just get that clear. I had to make sure I had a team who were absolutely on board and, and I was lucky. I'm not, not lucky. I was. It was great. People wanted the institution to succeed. Artists would help. Gallery owners wanted it to succeed. My colleagues in other organisations were fantastic. You know, um, you know, Edmund Capon would like to have taken us over for the Art Gallery of New South Wales. But apart from that, you know, the, there was a lot of support. So we had just had to galvanise it. But the number one weapon was the staff. You know, I had to get the staff to understand that we could do this, mm-hmm. but we had to all be on the same page. So comments like, oh, we don't invite the Daily Telegraph to our press conferences. That's not our demographic. People like that didn't last very long because people had to understand that we could not be an elitist art institution. Otherwise, we wouldn't get, nor should we get public money. 
if you're going to get public money, you have to demonstrate you have public benefit. And to do that, you have to make an effort to encourage art for everyone, not just art for those who already know about it. And I was criticized in the art world. I was criticized by some people who said, oh, you know, she's too busy worrying about the audience. And I said to a couple of them, have you ever spoken to a politician? You know, they're not going to give us money just because they think art's good. I mean, that argument exists to this day. We have to demonstrate why we deserve public money. And and you also had some wins, it looks like, early on in regards to corporates coming on board. There was a couple, it looks like a couple of game changes. Uh, A total game changer was Telstra. So my mantra with the board was, we've got to be free. We've got to be free. We've got to get people in. They don't want to pay this $12. It's a huge barrier. It's a psychological barrier, not just a financial barrier. And so the board said, ha, ha, ha. You know, that's half a million dollars a year, Lizanne. We, you know. So I said, okay, I'll do it. But it has to be, they said, you can do it, but it has to be cash neutral. And there was a one of those incidents where there'd been a, a bad story in the media and I was out, you know, countering it. And actually, I think Channel 10, no, Channel 9 came down to do a story about the wonderful artworks we had on that nobody could see because nobody knew they were there because we didn't have a big enough budget and people had to pay. And I got back to my desk and I had been chatting with Telstra. They were interested in helping us. And there was a message on my answering machine saying, call me. I think this is a project for Telstra. And someone at the top of Telstra, not the CEO, was a guy called Ted Pretty, had recognized that a contemporary art museum, if run properly, could attract a younger demographic at the time that Telstra was beginning to try and shift from being landlines to mobiles, very simply, but ultimately into a a modern telecommunications company. And Telstra came in with half a million dollars, cash flowed us out. And it was transformative. The numbers went from less than 100,000 to almost 300,000 in the first year and continued to climb. And so just before the pandemic, we were named in the art newspaper in New York, the highest attended museum of contemporary art in the world with over a million visitors. Congratulations. Extraordinary. I, I would never have believed it. I remember having an argument with the with one of the politicians who said, you've got to get half a million visitors. And I was like, how am I going to do that? I've got less than 100,000 at the moment. So very nice to have hit that target, I must say. I guess from corporates out there, Elizabeth, what was the benefit you think that Telstra received? Telstra used to joke that they never got cheered. And when I stood up at MCA openings in front of five, 600 people and said, the MCA is free, thanks Telstra, you know, everybody cheered. So there was a change of, you know, there was a good alignment of Telstra wanting to shift its image to being more user-friendly to, um, you know, to to being more popular, I guess. And, you know, the MCA is such a great location. I'm, you know, I would never underestimate how that helped me achieve what I did. I mean, people want to have functions there. So Telstra was able to use the facilities and we eventually developed much better ones, as, as you would know. And so for corporates coming there, they could be corporate, good corporate citizen by saving the museum and making it more widely accessible. They loved all the education programs. The lo- they loved that we had, a, we had always done an incredible program for children with special needs. None of this work was ever talked about in the media. You know, the museum had an, has an incredible um, a program of, of learning for, you know, children from different backgrounds, from Western Sydney, I've mentioned, from regional New South Wales for teenagers who don't have access. All these incredible programs that are back to this sort of idea about art can actually help people in their lives. These were things that needed to be articulated more clearly. And, and they're the kinds of things that sponsors love. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think the MCA is a really great proposition because it connects the high end of town um, with the possibility for entertaining and all that with some really great social justice projects that really can change lives. And the relationships with the likes of the David Coes and the Simon Mordens also had a significant role to play, it sounds like. The private philanthropy was absolutely critical. And the moment with David, who sadly, as you know, passed away, David was the chair for many years, and Simon, who became the mainstay of the museum, 10 years as chair, the major donor, 
gave more than any level of government, although we eventually got all levels of government to support the expansion, which allowed us to develop our all our education facilities and our outreach work and develop new facilities to under underwrite our costs. Without those donors, those keynote donors and everybody who came with them, you know, we have people like, you know, Neil Balnaves, who sadly just passed away. Incredible support. I think we're the institution that the Balnaves Foundation has funded longer than anyone um, for our Gen Next program for teenagers. I mean, whoever thought you could get a thousand teenagers to come to an art museum on a Sunday night, you know, amazing. Without the Balnaves, that wouldn't have happened. So the funding model for the museum is 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 part government, part philanthropy, and part self-generated income. You know, I was running a business, a $22 million business, which sadly, of course, has suffered badly in COVID, but it will bounce back. And I have an I had an amazing team um, that does the best weddings and parties in town, basically. So it's a very good model, and um, the government funding, in my view, is a little on the low side now. It's a lot lower than our colleagues, and uh, that probably needs to be looked at. And I made that argument very strongly in my departing remarks to various levels of, of government. But I think that model is is what gives it stability. It's what it didn't have in the beginning, being able to pull different levers and uh, and up one, and when, when things get bad, you can turn to the others and... Uh, Certainly, private philanthropy and the Mordaunt family, in particular, were uh, were critical. As a businesswoman, what did you find most challenging? I'll be quite honest with you. In the beginning, it was the misogyny, uh, and I didn't realise that's what it was, which is quite funny because I hadn't really encountered it before. Um, but you know, <laughs> Sydney being as it is, lots of really great guys had lots of really great ideas, none of which were really particularly going to work. And, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to sort of and then realized that I was wasting a lot of time trying to tell people that things had already been tried or they were, you know, not so not so good. And I found that pretty hard in the beginning. And I found it at all levels. I found it in, in not just politicians, but politicians, advisors. And I'd never been yelled at like that was in those first that first year. Um, it was quite unpleasant, to be quite frank. I read that, Elizabeth. Were you actually yelled at? It's, I found that quite extraordinary when I was reading oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, many times. M- many times. I mean, anyone who's dealt with certain levels of, of political discourse will have will have dealt with it, whether it's at federal or state level or indeed um, in council level. It's just a modus operandi for politics in this country and maybe politics everywhere, though I, I've never found it quite as vicious as I found it here. Uh, and uh, there were lots of agendas. the other thing was really fascinating were all these agendas going on you know it's you know all these different people it was all about the real estate mm. you know all the people who were wanting different deals because the museum was in this incredible position and they kept trying to move me and say they said oh well we'll put you somewhere else we'll stick you somewhere on an island where nobody can get to all that stuff so yeah the politics was brutal i have to say but you know once we were established you know i took great pleasure in um proving them wrong basically and um and just had to just keep going well, a few people said to me why don't why didn't you just get on the plane and leave and I, but i didn't because there were such great support there were there were people like Cynthia and Ted Jackson who'd been there since the beginning they were there were artists there were you know people who really wanted me to succeed and I was very fortunate to have a great network around me. You know, I had a lot of friends, a lot of people who'd invite me over for dinner and say, forget about the MCA, just come around and chill out, you know, dear Lindy Lee, you know, people like that. And that made it all worthwhile. And the staff, the staff were amazing. As a leader, so this is it, your fate, you really are right at the um, at the coalface, as, as we should say. What does go through your mind in the sense of, as you, you know, they're so close to walking away, that's an easy way to go. You're a guest of this country. You could, as you say, pack your bags and, and move on. You're facing some pretty strong um, verbal barrages on a regular basis. Where do you go at night when you sit back and contemplate, why should I take them on? And what give, what's, what, what drives that into flame? I'm a Scot. You know, Rob the Bruce, you know, the spider, try, try, try again. That's one thing. I mean, I, I joking, I, I, joking is one way of dealing with it exactly like that, you know, so, so not to let it get to you. I mean, it, it was pretty hard, mm. but, um, 
just trying to focus on what you could achieve, really not trying to get too caught up in the, in, 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 in the, in the nonsense that was going on, swilling around me and ignoring the headlines. You know, there was all these, there were, there were battles over the real estate all the time and trying to ignore that. And while, you know, there was a proposal, I mean, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, who was actually very well intentioned and really wanted to help, but he did, he wanted to knock the building down and rebuild it. And I, I didn't believe really- so I had a very famous and very public falling out with him. Fortunately, we made up for it and became very good friends and colleagues thereafter. But you know, there were there were people like you know that that, that really wanted that different agenda from mine, who were pushing me. So I just had to keep keep the faith that I could that that we could get through it, and not lose not lose that. It wasn't even confidence; it was just sheer bravado. Frankly, that was it. I just went right. I'm I'm just going to do this and and keep doing it until it appears I can't do it and then then I'll run away. Fortunately, we got saved. <laughs> do you think from your observations and all your experience that Australia really has, or Australians have, a genuine appreciation of art? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to be honest, I, it's not that I've educated them. I think they always did. It was just, there was never... The, when I came here, I came on. I came twice before I took the job. Mm-hmm. Once on a tour, and another time to work on an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And each time, because I was giving lectures in different places, I was amazed at the at the curiosity and the fantastic engagement in art in this country. Partly because of being far away, people were very well informed, and um, they were connected. They wanted to connect with the wider world. So I do, I've never thought that Australians were anti-art. It was just the way in which the museum had got caught up in this sort of media, media and it happened in Britain as well. I mean, yep. the, the Tate was yep. lambasted every year for the Turner Prize, you know, a load of rubbish, the man in the street hates it. You know, that went on for years. So Australia wasn't any different. And I felt there was a, le- to be quite honest with you, that Australians, I think, are less cynical than the Brits about art. I found it much easier to convert people, if you like, or to persuade them to give it a go because Australians love giving it a go. And so if I could persuade them to, to take that bit of their character on and give art a go, then I was able to, uh, to get somewhere on it. What was the most rewarding of all the collections that you brought to the museum? From internationally, there are so many, I can't even begin to, but I will, I, will, I will name Anish Kapoor. Anish Kapoor is one of the world's great sculptors. And I had the great good fortune to put Anish Kapoor on the traveling gallery in the early 80s when his career was just beginning. So I knew him. And one of the things that's often said about the museum and one of when they were trying to, re, you know, I wanted to remodel it. Oh, you should knock it down. It's a terrible building. It's got columns, you know, no big... No. So being able to pull off a show of one of the greatest living sculptors in a building that people said wasn't really good for art, for sculpture, was to me amazing. And he was great. He was generous. He, he was really fantastic to work with. And of course, it was the first international show in the newly newly re, redesigned building with some new gallery space and the new wing, the Mordant Wing. So it was, it was a great show and I, I, and the public, you know, someone said to me the other day, I'll never forget that Anish Kapoor show. People still say that to me. So it was a very, that was a very special one. And was there a particular moment when you stood there in the gallery one day and realized I'm winning? (laughs) I think when I walked through the gallery with the premier, it was Bob Carr. And I kid you not, there was a representation of Sydney in that gallery. Yep. Okay. There was a young woman using a wheelchair who was having a great time. There were people from several different cultural backgrounds. There were young Chinese students in there. There was a cross section of society. And in fact, there was a Daily Telegraph editor with us on this little tour that I was giving to Bob Carr. And he turned around and he went, Hey, my people are in here (laughs) in front of the premier. And I thought, okay, that's it. We're okay now. The Daily Telegraph has seen Daily Telegraph readers going into the MCA. So we're getting somewhere. So Elizabeth, just to keep the museum open, is it circa $800,000 a year? So the museum budget is $22 million. Right. And what we have to do every year is generate an additional $800,000 because right. costs rise 
and income stays the same, or at least government income stays the same. So as government's grants, inflation is, of course, it's been easier the last few years, but when inflation is rising and you have to pay staffing costs, there's no way of getting around that 3 to 4% on staff, and you shouldn't ever. So there's a gap opens up every year that you're, so you're running faster to stand still all the time. And that's where that 800,000 comes from. It's the gap opening up. What do you actually mean when you keep saying, put the artist first? What does that actually mean? Without art, there is no museum. You know, that's an obvious thing to say. But uh, many museums historically have taken artists' work and pretty much done what they liked with it. You know, they could show one artist next to another one. The philosophy of most contemporary artists, and particularly the MCA, is you involve the artist. You involve the artist for a number of reasons. It shows respect to their work. And that doesn't mean to say that you necessarily print everything they want you to see, but it does mean that you work with them in a partnership. And if they if they really don't want you to describe something in a particular way, you shouldn't. You really shouldn't. You should take into account that they're... And the lovely thing about a contemporary art museum is you're working with living artists. There is a joke in the curatorial world that the best artist is the dead artist because then you don't have to ask their opinion. But our philosophy is to embrace the artist. And, and for a contemporary art museum, creating an archive, for example... You not only have the artwork, but you can interview the artist. You can find out what their influences are. You can get so much more insight into their work. And that's what it means. It means actually treating it holistically, not just we buy this work, we put it on the wall, and then we have no further engagement with the artist. And it's very important, I think, that you actually do have that relationship. And artists are incredibly generous and supportive because of that. They recognize that you do that and you you have a, a partnership and you don't just use their art to promote your institution. Uh, and sometimes that can happen in, in, in other institutions. Do we appreciate how tough it is for an artist to get to the top? Um, I think there's a, still a big learning curve for, for the public. Um, you know, I think the stereotypes about artists doing wacky, weird things. I mean, they do do wacky, weird things, but often with a great purpose and sometimes great outcomes and sometimes not. So I think that the, that's why the programs the museum runs to encourage people to come and hear artists and curators talking about the work. Or one of the things that's very special about the MCA is a team of artist educators. Um, so we don't have teachers. We have artists who we train as educators. They'll be part-time. They'll come in. They'll do the various um, classes. They'll, so every child who comes to the MCA is having an experience with an artist, talking about other artists' work or coming up with ideas for how to interpret or to respond to, or to make, and to, uh, to unlock your own creativity, because that's a very important part of the museum's work now. That we have this incredible learning centre where people can come along and be creative. It's an incredible thing to do. In your observations on the Australian society, do we allow creativity to flourish enough? Do we encourage it enough? No. <laughs> Short answer to that one. Um, the school system is, is 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 pretty good in New South Wales. The curriculum has been very good, but I despair sometimes. I mean, creativity is the future. Without creativity, you know, what are we going to do when the robots take over? They're going to do all the other jobs. They can't do creativity. And um, what are we going to need? There's a fantastic book the Department of Education produced about what are we going to need in the age of AI, artificial intelligence, yep. creativity critical thinking, collaboration. These are all things that the artist educators teach at the MCA. So we have the answer to the future of work. And I'm pleased to say that the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Parity, is someone who is very interested in this. I had very interesting conversations with him about this some time ago when he was treasurer. The need for creativity to be recognised for the future of work. So what do you reckon makes you different? <laughs> oh, different from what? <laughs> Look, I stand out here because of my accent, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I, who knows, you know, my, my ability to, to wear tartan for fun, you know, poke fun at myself a little bit, you know. You still wear that your Doc Martens, don't you? in the beginning. 
I, I now and again I still I still have one pair. Yes, um, it's not so easy in the winter to in the summer here to wear tartan, so I'm not wearing any today. But uh, yeah, I think not taking myself too seriously. You know, I, I I'm I'm in the art world, but I'm not of the art world. You know, I I, I didn't study contemporary art. I haven't gone through. You know, I, I, I kind of like to think, even though I've been a professional all these years, I still have a little bit of an outsider's bullshit detector. You know, I just don't, I don't really want to hear, you know, if we're, to, if we're doing a catalogue, that's one thing. But if we're doing something for a general public, I don't want to hear jargon. You know, I, I, tease the, I tease the curatorial team. I used to tease them all the time. What does that mean? Get my red pen out, you know, press delete on some of the words that get used because it just makes life. Why would you make something that's already complicated even more complicated? Um, so I guess that that passion for for clarity in language is something that does distinguish distinguish me in a way. What about Indigenous art? What's been your your takeaway from from what you've been exposed to? Well, that was what first caught my attention. I'll be quite quite honest. Um, I met Gordon Bennett, amazing Aboriginal artist in London, and and became very interested in, in his story and, and what he'd struggled with and how it manifested itself in extraordinary artworks. Um, and then to come here and learn more about the whole range and, and not to differentiate between urban and rural, but actually it's all part of that incredible contribution that Aboriginal art makes in this country. Um, I think to get work like, you know, bark paintings and, um, and weavings from Maningrida and so on recognised as contemporary art uh, sounds may sound odd, but it, it, it's been a, a big learning curve for, for the Europeans and North Americans that these, these are extraordinary artworks. They're not craft, they're art. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art is, after all, what makes Australian art unique. And not that there aren't other great artists outside of that, but it is what is so extraordinary. And when we get curators coming here and learning and understanding about it within our context, it's extraordinary. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that right now at the Tate Modern in London, there is a display of works by Australian artists, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but they are predominantly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists that is showing to the wider world in one of the great museums of modern art in the world. And it's a showcase for our artists. And all of those works were bought jointly with the MCA, thanks to an extraordinary piece of philanthropy by Qantas a few years ago, uh, who gave us a, a sum of money to help reposition contemporary Australian art internationally. And uh, that's uh, I'm so looking forward to seeing that when I go overseas next week. Elizabeth, as a leader, when you, you're sitting there planning ahead, how do you think about new opportunities? How do you seize that opportunities? Does it come to you late at night? You're thinking six, 12 months ahead, you surround yourself by interesting people. What's the process? It's mostly the last one. Surrounding yourself with interesting people, having discussions, and being open to ideas, um, not thinking you know all the answers. You know, I'll give you a good example, NFTs. I, can't, I, have, I have no idea how to get my head around NFTs, uh, but I have a good friend who does. So every time I get an inquiry, I just say, oh, let's just go and have a chat with, uh, with, with Ross Harley, who used to be the dean of UNSW. He knows all about NFTs. So <laughs> looking for new opportunities, yes, absolutely. And in a, in a business sense too, I think you just have to listen to the, to the, to the experts because I'm not expert in every single area of the museum. Mm. And uh, the venues team are the ones who come up with great ideas and they come and run them past me. And sometimes I go, oh, you have to be kidding. We can't possibly do that. You know, can, can a couple have a wedding photograph taken in front of an artwork? Yes. Why not? That's a great idea. So we can promote weddings differently. So I think being a bit, letting people know that you like being a sounding board I will shut things down sometimes, quite often. You think, oh, no, that's not going to work um, because I have the museum's reputation. I'm the keeper of the <laughs> of that, if you like. But no, I, 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 love, I love it when staff, not just staff, you know, other people outside can, can lob ideas in. Um, exhibitions, whatever, you know, they're all, exhibitions are put together by a team of curators and there are great discussions go on around the, around the table, I can tell you, about which artists are, are in our sites for a major exhibition. So leadership. How do you, in your mind, sum up leadership? 
having the passion and the ability to understand your business really, really well, first of all. And I can really only talk about it in my context. And then having the courage to take the risks that will take it take it out, take it to the next stage, but not leaving your team behind. You know, there's so many leaders I think actually are great visionaries. There's no good being a visionary if you can't sell the vision to the people you need to work with. You know, if I was only able to sell the vision to my wonderful philanthropy group, it wouldn't work. The staff have to be there. Even if they don't all entirely agree, there has to be an ability to buy into that uh, to that vision. So having a vision and selling it and bringing the team into the vision to me is what really makes it work. And being prepared to listen, that's a big learning curve for me, you know, since my early days of leadership, listening as well as pontificating. Under all this sort of thinking, Elizabeth, how tough was it during COVID? Oh, it was awful, I'll be honest with you. Um, At the beginning, the first month or so when it looked really bleak um, financially and everything else, and there were lots of things happening around the world. America was in terrible distress because American museums are mostly privately funded and that funding just vanished. All right. Um, with doors being closed and, and everything. So it was really hard, um, but we were in a good place financially. So having to negotiate, do you spend your reserves or do you, you know, what's your first, what's your priority in this new crazy world that we're entering? And it was very, very challenging for everybody. And um, my strong conviction was that we should preserve the staff initially. We really should. We had reserves and we agree, it was agreed we would do that. Fortunately, JobKeeper came along and the federal government really deserves credit. The arts did benefit enormously. You know, you can never give us enough money, but arts did benefit enormously. And there were other schemes, both federal and state government, certainly for, from the MCA's perspective, we could not have survived. When your venue hire completely stops, it's very scary. We'd gone through the GFC. We actually recalibrated. We shifted away from corporates to private. That worked. But now, nothing. So it was very challenging um, and made me realize just how dependent on government we still are. And I think that's just a fact of life. We have to be. And as things progressed, we were able to um, change the program Obviously, everything international couldn't happen. We had to cancel our big summer show. We couldn't bring works here. We turned that into a plus. Um, I'm terribly biased, of course, because my wonderful Lindy Lee exhibition became the summer show. So we switched to the local, from the global to the local. And that was important. That was a good thing to do. And it really it paid off enormously. And so we had to recalibrate the program. We were running running financial scenarios practically every week at one point. It was pretty. And then eventually we all agreed, you just can't do this. You just have to do a month at a time until we get through this. So that that went on for pretty much a year. Um, And then, of course, the second wave and and everything that, that, uh, that that entailed. Um, and that was more about staff, you know, the confidence to come back to work. How how can you really can't install an exhibition remotely? So managing staff and managing staff's concerns was was very challenging. What did you learn about yourself, Elizabeth, in terms of, I guess, one, handling pressure and two, actually thinking, gosh, I've got to think. I'll be honest with you, having gone through saving it in the first place, expanding it, which was incredibly challenging, then the GFC, I thought, can I really do this again? And I had to, and I did. And it was, and my my leaving has got nothing to do with that. My decision to leave was actually made pre-COVID. I just hadn't, bad timing, but and good timing in some ways. But I, I just had to, you know, really just ramp up again ramp up again but um i what what i wanted to do was get it back on stable ground again i was no way i was going to leave it in a mess and hopefully hand over to i had a chair transition to manage in the mm-hmm. middle of all this yep and uh, and obviously my, then ultimately my own my own transition so um simon leaving after 10 years and we were very fortunate to uh, appoint loreen taraby who's a amazing chair um very different but equally passionate as Simon was. So it was a, that was a really important thing to do to create that stability. I think often museum directors get burnt out and they walk out, they do a building project and they walk out and leave the institution in a mess for the next person. It is a bit of a, a, bit of a thing, <laughs> especially after expansions. 
<laughs> At least I stayed for a long time after the expansion. Did you have a sense of feeling bring it on almost? This is, this is a challenge that very few were going to get through and thank God I'm here. Not really. It was it was really a grind, to be honest with you. I just had to. I just kept telling myself, I've just got to get through one more week, and then another week, and then another week, and then another week, and then it'll start to improve. And I I hit the phones pretty early on okay. um, to the to our sponsors. I mean, people like the Balnaves, you know, the the, the Jacksons, all these incredible um, donors that that came. And in the first year, that in the first crisis, they were amazing. You know, people really stepped up. And so it, that was really good that I could ring people and they could say, don't worry, Lizanne, we are going to support you. You know, you've got, you know, banks of credit built up out there. We're there for you. So that was very reassuring. And since when that started happening, I, I felt we, we'll get through this. People are not going to let us suffer. I mean, we would suffer, but not go down. <laughs> is, that, is that the message for aspiring people out there? Build the banks of credit? Absolutely. Absolutely. With your donors, with your politicians, absolutely. Never sit back on your laurels. Actually, we did, I can tell you one example where I did. Okay. When we got, we got money from Bob Carr for five years, mm -hmm. just as we were renegotiating it, we were very close to a, a new deal. Bob Carr resigned. And overnight, it changed. And the treasurer, the then treasurer, did not like art. One of them in treasury actually said, well, we stabilized you five years ago. You're stable now, so we can take the money away. Right. So can you imagine? It was like, are you kidding me? Not again. And what I realized was a problem was that we had been very reliant on the premier. He was the minister for the arts and also the premier. Yes. And we got to know, but we didn't know enough. Our, our, our political capital wasn't deep enough, really. That was a really good lesson is, you know, one person goes and you suddenly you're like, wow, our champion has disappeared. You always need a breadth of champions, whether that's in a corporate or in, or in government. And how much time of a week would you spend doing that, Elizabeth, out of interest? Oh, probably, I, I probably spent 70% of my time fundraising and of that, probably half of that was political, if I'm honest, if you count going to things and schmoozing. And <laughs> but 70, it's interesting, that 70% of your time. Oh, yes, fundraising, absolutely. I think that's true for most museum directors, yeah. What's the legacy? <laughs> Well, the museum's still there, and it has a wonderful extension, the Mordant Wing. It has a wonderful collection, and it has a big bank of credit. Uh, I was talking to my successor today, actually. She said, oh, people have been so great. You know, they're really supportive, and she's great, Suzanne Cotter. She's going to be amazing, and it's in a good place. We got through COVID. We got another chunk of money just at the end. The state government, again, were just amazing. The department was fabulous, and... Um, yeah, we owe, we owe them a big thank you, all of those people, you know, Don Harwin and his crew, Paul Fletcher, and their people, their people in the department as well. It's not just the front face, the politicians, it's the department that actually does the hard work in the end. So we're very grateful to them. So Elizabeth, the milestone, the 30th anniversary, that was, that was the right time for you to decide to move on? That felt right. It wasn't the intention, but COVID kept me a bit longer and it felt right. It felt absolutely right. Um, I had a bit of a protracted leaving, I have to say. I didn't get the big party with the dancing and all the rest of it. I had five leavings, I think, in the end. But the best moment, the saddest moment, perhaps the moment where I came closest to crying, was when the staff organised a Scottish piper to pipe me out of the building. And I heard this noise, and I couldn't believe it. And this piper appeared. And not only that, but he turned out to be a McGregor. He even had the right tartan on <laughs> And they didn't know that. And the staff piped me out of the building. And the second moment was when the 30th birthday, um, I was invited to join the Aboriginal dance, the emu dance. And so um, those two things are my most precious memories. You talked a little bit about it early on, but what's the next big adventure for you? Well, my immediate future is to go back to Scotland and see my mum. I haven't seen her for three years, so I'm very much looking forward to that. I'm going to spend a couple of months there. I think we will spend some time in Europe. I'm, I speak Italian. I love Italy, so I've always wanted to spend more time there. But we are very passionate about Australia, our, our new home on the Mid-North Coast, and hopefully making a serious contribution to preserving the extraordinary um, landscape and the, the bush here. 
And, you know, I'll tip my hat in to, to help. I'm, I'm helping the Nature Conservation Council at the moment as it, as it happens behind the scenes. Nothing up front, just doing a little bit of work with Chris Gamby and the CEO. So things like that I'll take on. Um, Flora and Fauna International have asked me to get involved there as well. So we'll see how it pans out. One question we're noted for, if you were to look back at that young Elizabeth driving that bus around Scotland all those years ago, what advice would you give her today? Stick to your passion. Stick to your passion. Don't ever give up on it. And uh, you'll always find a way through. On that, Elizabeth, we've really enjoyed you making the time during these difficult times with the rain and the storms and the floods and everything else coming through. Really, really appreciate it today. Not at all. It's been a great pleasure to chat. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs> <laughs>